0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. We've spent a couple of weeks in this chapter already. and Like I said earlier, we're going to attempt to finish it today with the opportunity to come back and clarify anything that we need to clarify in a couple of weeks when I'm back from vacation. Um, last week we talked... After we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, after we looked at the calming of the storm, we looked at the motivation of the crowd to come back and seek out Jesus, uh, ultimately to have their bellies refilled after their um, supernatural lunch that they had had the day before. And Jesus confronts them about their, their motivation, um, really challenging them as to whether or not they are willing to follow him when times are not so physically filling. Um, And so we looked at that specifically last week, that Jesus works in our life with the goal of having us trust him, not only in times of plenty, but also in times of great need, so that we learn to hope in him always, which brings great glory to God. And so we talked about how to, uh, to stay encouraged during stormy times, how to keep trusting him when times aren't physically great. And so we said to remember, first of all, that God works everything for his glory. And so sounds cliche, maybe within our church setting to say that because we say it so frequently and so often, but it's it's really important to remember that in this context of how do we stay encouraged during stormy times? Well, we have to remember that God's working everything for his glory, um, even in the midst of those storms. Secondly, to remember that hard times result in our good, uh, which is ultimately our sanctification. And we said that ultimately we are supposed to hope in God's glory. That the the anticipation, the promise of God's glory is what brings us hope, which allows us to stay comforted in the fact that, okay, if God's going to be glorified in storms, then I can have great hope in the midst of this difficulty because I am hoping in his glory. And we said that we don't automatically do that, that that's a, a sign of growth, a sign of maturity. And so we said that the, the hard times are meant to get us to the point of being able to hope in his glory. We talked about remembering ministry opportunities flow from our experiences, that uh, we saw that God comforts us and allows us to then comfort others that are going through similar situations. And then we talked about remembering God's promises are sufficient. And we saw specifically the storm in the book of Acts that Paul goes through <clears throat> and how it's ultimately a promise that had already been made to Paul that gets told to him again in the midst of that storm that ultimately gives him hope. And so we said he didn't get new revelation. He didn't get any new information. It was all old information that he clung to. He just needed to be reminded of it. And so in our stormy times, we don't need a new word from God. We don't need a a fresh word from God. Oftentimes, we just need to be reminded of things that God has already promised us and already told us, right? Today, we come to a difficult passage. Uh, not because I call it difficult, but because Scripture portrays it as a difficult passage. The the hearers of this teaching of Jesus call it difficult. Uh, the response of the people indicates it was a difficult passage because many choose to no longer follow Jesus at the end of it, and so we're going to approach this cautiously um, in anticipation of what God wants to teach us today. It's a long passage, um, maybe too long to try to tackle in one day. In fact, when I was Uh, Printing the notes for you guys to have in the back and then slicing them. I left my own notes in the slicer. So if we get long winded today, we have a natural breaking point of when to stop this sermon. All right. Um, Let's look at the summary sentence for today Jesus calls us to believe fully in him as a means of satisfying our greatest longings. And even though his teachings can be difficult to embrace at times, He ultimately offers us security in eternity, giving us reason to never leave him. Jesus calls us to believe fully in him as a means of satisfying our greatest longings. And even though his teachings can be difficult to embrace at times, he ultimately offers us security in eternity, giving us reason to never leave him. I forgot to put our kids' notes for that up there. Jack, do you have a copy of those that I can look at? And I'll just give you all the answer to this one. Jesus never gives us a good reason to leave him. Jesus never gives us a good reason to leave him. That's for our kids' notes. Jesus calls us to believe fully in him as a means of satisfying our greatest longings. And even though his teachings can be difficult to embrace at times, he ultimately offers us security in eternity, giving us reason to never leave him. This discourse on the bread of life, it is meant to rescue us, from emptiness. Augustine, one of the church fathers said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. This passage is lengthy, but I believe that we can and should tackle it all in one sitting today because I believe that Jesus continues to cycle back through a lot of the same ideas. So it's not that he is Uh, long-winded in saying a bunch of new content, he continues to come back to some of the same truths, some of the same teachings, in hopes of really making sure that the people who are sitting and listening grasp it, understand it, aren't confused by it, and if they choose to reject it, are rejecting it based on a lack of belief rather than confusion. So we're gonna see that I think Jesus repeats a lot of the same things throughout this passage to emphasize the importance of it. And then I also think that in this passage, we see that God, that Jesus teaches that God has, has chosen a people for himself, and that he works very intentionally to bring those people to him. And so we're going to see that <clears throat> through the course of these verses today as well. I told you it's a difficult passage in the fact that people leave and don't come back afterwards, and so um, that's certainly something that causes a preacher to pause a little bit and saying, okay... Um, there's a chance that people would not come back after today in hearing me relay some of the same things that Jesus has said. So I think it's even a reason why I want to make sure that questions are answered. Not that I anticipate anybody leaving, not that I believe I'm going to say anything controversial today that would result... In anybody's departure, but I certainly wouldn't want anybody to walk away confused about this passage, or to be confused about anything that I say about this passage. And so that's why I want to give you plenty of opportunity to dialogue with me. I believe Jesus is providing that opportunity. He is teaching and dialoguing with his people that he is communicating with, and so I want to make sure that we have that uh, type of communication during our time as well. And so even if we have some time later today um, before before we head out of the sermon doesn't take near as long as it It looks like it might on paper. Then we can maybe even have some dialogue at the end. Um, Let's start by number one, looking at the fact that we need to recognize the severity of this passage. Recognize the severity of this passage. For our kids, because Jesus is God, we should trust him and never leave him. Recognize the severity of this passage. We need to approach this passage cautiously because we do need to fast forward and look ahead to the fact that we have the Jewish people who were kind of these individuals who were exploring Jesus that react with a lack of belief. But we also have in this passage a group of people who had labeled themselves disciples of Jesus. These are people who are not grouped with the Jews, the the, the Jewish religious leaders that we've seen earlier in John who are somewhat antagonistic a little bit towards Jesus and his teachings, have already started to look for ways to catch him, to even work towards killing him. That's not who ultimately walks away from following him at the end of this passage. It's people who were committed seemingly, who were calling themselves disciples that opt to walk away from Jesus at the end of this teaching. So we should approach it cautiously because most everybody in here today claims to be a disciple of Jesus. And this teaching exposes some people as not being genuine disciples. Um, So we should should approach this cautiously and recognize the severity of this passage. That, number one, some respond by denying the faith. And we're going to take time to read this entire passage later in the sermon, so we're not going to do it right now. But we are gonna see some key verses within this passage that help us see some of these truths. Some respond by denying the faith. Let's see some of the responses of the people in the crowd here. First of all, in verse 36, Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So there's some people in this group that don't believe. Others in this group that start to make excuses about why they're not going to accept this teaching. Verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I've come down from heaven? These are individuals that want to now attack whether or not Jesus possesses the right or the authority to say some of the things that he's saying because they know who he is. They know his origin. They know where he comes from. So they're making excuses as to why they should not receive this teaching because they believe they can explain away some of it, make excuses for it. And then others say the teaching is just too hard to accept. When many of his disciples verse 60 heard it they said this is a hard saying who can listen to it so some take opportunity here to deny the faith they don't believe they make excuses they determine that it's too hard to receive this teaching the majority and that are in this setting walk away when the teaching becomes challenging now we know from 1 John 2:19 these people are never really part of the believing community so lest we think that somehow these people were Christians and then lost their salvation. We've already examined those truths in the book of Hebrews recently before we got into the gospel of John. So if you weren't with us, uh, I'd love to encourage you to go back and listen to some of that teaching in Hebrews. Fully believe in the security of the believer here at Sovereign Hope, that once we are saved, we are sealed for the day of redemption. But we do have individuals At this time in the book of John and today in the church who claim to be Christians, claim to be disciples of Jesus, who then walk away or abandon the faith that simply show that they never were saved. 1 John 2.19 talks about people who leave, and John says they show that they were never really part of us. If they were part of us, they would have stayed. By leaving, they show that they were never really part of us. Why do these people abandon the faith here? Why do they deny the faith? Well, I believe it's a low view of Jesus that becomes the recipe for the abandonment. Let me say that again. A low view of Jesus is a recipe for abandonment. They are not able to see beyond his humanity to his deity. They don't have a good theology of Jesus, and we've talked about how important a good theology of Jesus is. We have to know who Jesus is if we're going to believe in him, if we are going to follow him, if we are going to continue following him. These individuals have seen him work miracles, have seen him do supernatural things, but when they're pressed a little bit, they come back to this is Mary and Joseph's kid, right? Which really makes no sense that Mary and Joseph's kid could have fed 5,000 people the day before. But when they are pressed, because the implications of him being God's son, have, have a lot of ramifications for how they're supposed to live their life moving forward, that it's really not optional whether you want to receive or not receive this teaching. You have to receive it if it's God's son. So they want to excuse themselves from having to listen to this, and so they remind themselves, this guy's Mary and Joseph's son. Like, we don't have to do anything here because he's not that special, right? And so a low view of Jesus is a recipe for abandonment. So never allow yourself to begin to diminish who Jesus is based on bad theologies that are out there that will attack the deity of Jesus. That that a low view of Jesus is a recipe for giving up on him. The word that's used here uh, by Jesus when he says, um, in response to them saying, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Verse 61, Jesus said, knowing in himself that these disciples were grumbling about this, He said to them, do you take offense at this? Right, we live in a culture today where people get offended by everything, right? Um, Even when there's not an attempt to offend, people oftentimes get offended. Jesus doesn't try to apologize for anything here. And the word that he chooses to use here, basically he says, does what I say cause you to want to give up believing? That's the idea of the offense here. Are you offended? Are you are you at a point now where you no longer want to believe based on the things that I've now said in this passage? Is, is your belief to me tied to you liking the things that I say? Because now that things have gotten a little hard, a little challenging, a little difficult, he says, are you offended by this? Do you want to give up believing because of this? Some respond by denying the faith here. Number two, others respond by confirming their faith. Let me tell you this. Difficulty and confusion are not good reasons to abandon the faith. Some of you have already talked about storms and trials that you've gone through in the last couple of weeks since we've started talking about this in the Gospel of John. And oftentimes storms bring difficulty and they bring confusion, right? I'm sure the disciples looked at their uh, best abilities to examine the weather before they got on the sea, right? So obviously they couldn't pull up their weather apps, uh, but even if they'd had weather apps, they're oftentimes very inconsistent to where you can you can think you're making good quality plans, and then the, the weather disrupts those plans, especially in the summertime, right? But I'm sure the disciples did everything they could to make a good judgment call about going on the sea. They were experienced fishermen, experienced boaters. They wouldn't have just ventured out onto the sea if they expected a storm to blow in. And I'm sure they had ways of determining whether a storm was... was possibly going to blow in or not. So there was probably some confusion out there as well. Like, hey, we did not see this coming. How in the world did we end up in this? Difficulty and confusion are never good reasons to abandon the faith. We're also reminded here that we must come to Jesus for Jesus and not for other material reasons. These people had been following him for miracles, for filled bellies, even the, the prospects of political power. Let's seize him. Let's make him king. We can overthrow Rome. These were not good enough reasons to follow Jesus because when those things stopped or when those things were not done to their liking, they walk away from Jesus. We must come to Jesus for Jesus and not for other material reasons. I love to hear the fact that Jesus isn't trying to decide who is staying and who is leaving. He already knows this, right? So this isn't Jesus asking, hey, are you offended? Are you going to stop believing? It's not him turning to his disciples and saying, are you guys going to stay with me? Or are you going to leave too? He already knows who's staying and he already knows who's leaving because he follows up all these statements and says, okay, you guys are saying that you're staying, but one of you is still going to betray me. He already knows who's staying and who's leaving. He already knows who the true believers are and who the true believers are not. Right? What he is doing is providing an arena, a setting, an opportunity for these people who are growing in their faith to have an opportunity to affirm their faith and for them personally to see it themselves. It's not It's not for Jesus. Jesus doesn't need them to affirm their faith. He knows whether they have faith or not. This is a chance for them to grow and mature in their faith. It's a chance for Peter to look and see the majority walking away and for him to shore up his faith a little bit to say, no, I'm staying because as I wrestle with this, yeah, it's difficult. Yes, it's hard. But where else am I going to go? Like, There's nowhere else for me to go. You have the words of life. Like, You have the things that I'm longing for. Even if I don't fully understand it, even if I don't even fully understand what it means to, to eat your flesh and drink your blood, I want to stick around to find out. I want to stick around to find out. Right. So this is a chance for them to shore up their faith, to express their faith, to grow and mature in their faith. Jesus already knows that it's there. Recognize the severity of this passage. Some people walk away. Some people abandon the faith. Let it not be us. The implication that I want you to kind of take away from this section, is there anything that could happen in your life that would tempt you to walk away from Jesus? That's a question worth asking yourself. Is there anything that could happen in your life that would tempt you to walk away from Jesus? Is there any type of difficulty that would cause such confusion? And obviously we can't know for sure, but just to step back and and put yourself in scenarios and even act out in your mind yourself saying, I would stay with Jesus even if that happened, I think is a healthy place. Because so oftentimes we come into settings and situations that we never anticipated and our faith is rocked and there's difficulty and confusion that sets in. And so many people doubt and question the goodness of God. Man, I want to know and believe Jesus in such a way that that if he were to take my wife, if he were to take my kids, if he were to take my job, if he were to take my house, if he were to strip me away of everything, that I would be found worshiping him much like Job was. That, That I wouldn't be running from him. I would be driven to him in the midst of my difficulty and confusion. We don't walk away from him. He never gives us a good reason to walk away that we believe him, even when his teachings are difficult, even when they're hard to embrace sometimes, he offers us security and eternity, giving us reason to never leave him. Number two, evaluate your motivations in life. Evaluate your motivations in life. After he questions their motivation for coming back the next day, he challenges them in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him the God, the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Jesus tells them that there's, there's two levels of work here. There's one, this idea of working to, to, put, food, to put food on the table. He says, don't, don't be so consumed with, with the type of work that is designed to produce things that perish right don't work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life so he's he's dividing this physical earthly mindset with the spiritual heavenly mindset and he says don't allow your life to be so consumed with providing uh, food for the table that perishes ultimately be consumed with with seeking the food that is eternal right um so Number 1 here. Don't let your life be only about putting food on the table. Physical pursuits don't last. We get hungry again. Physical pursuits don't last. This is true for food, this is true for non-food items. Right? That that if our life is consumed with the size of our house, the quality of our job, the uh, amount of our income, the uh, time off that we have to enjoy, uh, things that we enjoy doing, if our life is consumed with having the, the toys to enjoy the time off that we have, to do the things that we want to do, we will never have enough. We will never be satisfied. We will never get to a point where we say, this is all I need. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and food is the picture that's given to us here because it's a great example of the fact that something that we crave and long for is gone very quickly and within a short amount of time, we're, we're longing for some of those same things again, right? Doesn't matter how much money you spend on food, you're still going to be hungry again, right? Um, I remember uh, there's a family at Trinity who went on vacation, and she was telling me about her son doing this challenge to eat this, this tremendous steak. And if you ate this steak, a lot of places it's free, not in this place. You were you, you going to pay for this steak, but you get your name on the wall and you get like a t-shirt that says, I ate this, this steak, right? So she was like, man, he was so proud to do it. He ate the whole thing. Got his, and I said, how much was the steak? She was like, oh, it was like $100. Like he paid for it himself. Like he wanted like, the, and I was like, oh, like a like $100 meal that ultimately he probably wanted to eat dinner after eating it for lunch later right? Like, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't matter how much money you spend on a meal, you're going to be hungry again, right? It doesn't matter how much you eat at a meal, you're going to be hungry again, right? Like, we've all gone to buffets where we've overeaten, and we've made silly statements like, I don't think I could ever eat again, right? Like, I am so full. Like, there's no chance of me eating again, right? And then four or five hours later, it's like, eh, it's kind of dinner time, you know? Like, um, like, we used to do this at, at college. Like, we would oversleep on Saturday. The cafeteria would be closed. So, we would, our whole dorm would like head down to Cece's Pizza and like we would just pig out on, on the pizza buffet. Like, oh, we're so full. And like dinner time rolls around. It's like, hey, we're we going for dinner tonight, right? Because it doesn't matter how much you even eat at a meal. At some point, you are going to get hungry again even those who were receiving physical food from God, these these manna eaters in the Old Testament, what does Jesus say at the end of this passage? He says, the manna eaters died, right? Like even food from heaven, physical food from heaven did not sustain them and satisfy them and keep them alive. So Jesus says, look, don't make your life so consumed with the food that perishes, because it will never satisfy you. It will always leave you wanting more. It will Continue to create hunger inside of you. Instead, he talks about faith being the pleasing work that gives us access to spiritual food. Faith is the pleasing work that gives us access to spiritual food. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, work for the food that endures to eternal life. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, not with a list of good works to start doing. right. Instead, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus says, here's what it means to 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 work for the food that endures to eternal life. You believe in me. You believe in the one that God has sent. This is the work of God. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So Jesus is attacking their mindset of wanting something to do to earn favor with God, to, to earn this spiritual food. Instead, he talks about their faith in him being the mark of what, what gives them access to this food. This is the work of God that you believe in me. They wanna compare Jesus to Moses as though Moses was the provider of the manna. Jesus says, look, God's the one providing both. God provided the manna in the Old Testament. God has sent me to you as this spiritual food. And so ultimately there is no comparison to be made between him and Moses. Faith is the pleasing work that gives us access to spiritual food. The Jews wanted something to accomplish, and Jesus won't give it to them. The question for us to ask here is, are we driven by our physical hunger or our spiritual hunger? Is it an empty belly or a hungry soul that drives us? Think about how much hard work we put forth to avoid hunger and thirst in our life, right? Like We, we rarely skip a meal, and if we do, we'll oftentimes try to make up for it, Right? We work very hard to make sure that we ourselves are never hungry or never thirsty. Do we take the same type of measures to address the spiritual side of things? Right. Yesterday we went to the Braves game, and Lauren and I just decided to save our money. We'll eat afterwards. Expensive at the game, but it was hot. Right, so we got thirsty, and, and not so much hungry, but just really thirsty. But the longer you waited the less likely it was that you wanted to go down and spend money on that, on that Coke or that water because of the cost of it. Right. And so we just kept waiting. We kept waiting. We kept waiting. And John Mark and I were, were after the game. We were talking like, man, I'm so thirsty. Like, I can't wait to get to a restaurant. Everybody's like, where are we going? And I said, I don't care where we go. It just has to have unlimited refills on our drinks. Like wherever we go. I want my own dispenser where I can just stand there and just drink to my heart's content. Right. So John Mark and I, we go to this restaurant called Cookout and we're at the drink machine and we were just standing there filling our drinks up and just drinking to our heart's content because we were so thirsty right? We will go to great lengths and measures to satisfy some of those physical desires. When we get hungry and we get thirsty, we get cranky, and we start taking drastic measures to fix those things. We oftentimes don't do the same from the spiritual side. Rarely do we get to the point where we are craving spiritual things. And in our weak flesh, most of us will sit here today, listen to this sermon, and have to fight the tendency to think about what we are going to eat afterwards right? When we are being given spiritual food, we have a hard time not focusing on the physical food that comes after this, right? Are we driven by empty bellies or hungering souls? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Evaluate your motivations in life. Number three, understand the bread analogy. Like we, 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 don't walk on, we don't want to walk away from this passage missing the bread analogy because Jesus comes back to it over and over and over and over, and over again, For our kids, believing in Jesus is how we eat the bread of life. Don't miss what he is trying to communicate through the avenue of food here. Number one, Jesus is God's provision to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Much like a Coke and a hamburger satisfied my physical hunger and thirst last night, Jesus is the provision for our spiritual hunger, our spiritual thirst. And we see this throughout Scripture. This isn't unique to John chapter 6. The human need to know God is expressed as hunger and thirst in other areas. In Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, it's the familiar passage that talks about as the deer pants for the water that we're to long for the things of God, right? In Psalm chapter 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That, That longing, comparing it to our physical longings. In Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 3, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Matthew 5, 6 talks about the blessing for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So Jesus is God's provision to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Number two, we must fully embrace Jesus to enjoy true life. What's the, what's the gist of the, of the bread analogy? Jesus is wanting us to see that in the same way physical food satisfies us, he satisfies us in a much greater way. But in the same way we have a responsibility to go all in when it comes to satisfying ourselves with food and drink, that the only way we can really enjoy Jesus is to go all in with him as well, right? So if you were to just kind of nibble and pick at food or, or take a, a sip here and there, you're not really addressing your hunger and your thirst, right? Like if we had gotten to the, the cookout restaurant last night and I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I just kind of looked at my food and, and kind of played with my food but never really fully invested in my food, I'm not satisfying my hunger and my thirst. So what he's trying to do here with this analogy is he's, is he's trying to help us see what it looks like to really believe him to really believe him. Food's value increases when we feel hungry. So it starts with us seeing a need for for him from a spiritual side of things, for us to even really desire to feast upon him. Food cannot satisfy us though unless it is eaten, right? So the spiritual truths that you hear from me, the spiritual truths that you read about in scripture or listen to in other podcasts, other sermons, other books that you read, they have to be internalized and believed by you for them to be effective in your life. You can't just come and listen to them and hear them. If there's no desire for you to apply the things that you're hearing and internalize them, to eat them, right? So you come and you have the, the spread given to you on a Sunday morning. You have a spread for you every morning that you decide to wake up or every night that you stay up or every break that you take during the day to open your, your Bible to, to read the Word of God. You have a spread laid before you with an opportunity for you to take it and to eat it, to internalize it, to do something with it. Food consumption involves a level of trust. I have a strict rule. I don't put anything into my mouth if I don't know what it is, right? Somebody comes up to me and is like, hey, you should try this. Hey, what is it? Don't worry about it, just try it. Nope, like that violates the the one rule that I have about my mouth is that I don't put anything into it if I don't know what it is. So you're not gonna sneak something into me that I haven't evaluated, right? Like I want to know if it's got cream cheese in it. I want to know if it's ever been in contact with ranch. I want to know these things aren't going into my body because I've already determined I want them ever there again, right? So I don't, I don't eat things, I don't drink things, and I, I really don't smell things if I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put something in my mouth and be grossed out by it and, and, and gag on it. am just not going to. When I eat something, there is a level of trust where I say, you know what, this is good for me. Like, I want this to become a part of me. I wanna take this and put it on the inside of me and I'm very comfortable with that. That's the picture that he's giving here of himself that when we feast upon him, we are saying yes to Jesus. I want Jesus. I want to consume Jesus. I want him in me. I'm all in with him. There's a level of trust that we are exhibiting when we choose to believe in him. Food becomes a part of us when we ingest it. So thinking about eating, knowing nutritional facts about food, even knowing how food processes within our bodies, it's not the same thing as eating. So again, you could know a whole lot about God. You could know a whole lot about the Bible. You could know how salvation works. You could know this and this and this and this. But if it's never been internalized for you, if you've never seized it, believed it, and allowed it to change you, you've not feasted upon the bread of life. Jesus uses this this graphic language about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which again conjures up some, some maybe uncomfortable ideas in our mind about what he is suggesting. But if we look deeper in the context of what he is saying, it's very clear what it means to eat and drink of his body. It means to believe him. It means to believe him. What does it say in verse 35? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All right, what does it mean to, to drink and eat? It means to come to him and it means to believe in him. That's how we feast upon him. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Throughout this passage, he has talked about eating the bread of life to get eternal life. Well, how do we do that? He says, whoever believes has eternal life. So we don't have to make this too complicated. We don't have to wonder, is anything crazy going to happen next time we do the Lord's Supper? Right? What does it mean to eat and drink of Jesus? It means to believe him, to take him at his word and to entrust ourselves to him. And that's what these people were not doing and what they were not willing to do. They were not willing to go all in on him. They were not willing to follow him when their bellies were not going to be filled. Believing is staking your life on the fact that the only way to live is to receive him. All your hope is placed on him to sustain you. The implication for us is you can't have a casual relationship with Jesus. He must be deeply ingrained in you because you are consuming him. I think it's our human emotional tendency to try to expand the, the group of people who, sh- who who are saved, like like we want to we want to be more inclusive, makes us feel better if we say that certain individuals are Christians, even though there may be a complete lack of fruit, uh, really a lack of evidence, but there's something that maybe we 'll try to hold on to cling to. They used to go to church or I remember the day they made a profession of faith even though there hasn't been much change within them, Like we, we want people to be saved, right? Like we want people to be included. If anything, this passage shows us that, man, there's a lot of people who, who maybe claim to be Christians that aren't, that, that say they want Jesus, but not really. Not when it gets hard, not when it gets difficult, not when it's unsatisfying from a physical standpoint. When you're, not, when you're not doing what I want you to do, Jesus, when you're not doing it the way that I want you to do it, that's when I'm going to walk away. That's what the majority of the people are doing in this passage. And it would be a mistake to call any of these people Christians who walk away from him after this day. And we all know people who have done that, and too oftentimes I think we are wanting to call them Christians because it makes us feel better. Because we know if they're not, this is where they, they, they are destined to be and that's not a comfortable feeling for us. But I'm afraid sometimes it numbs us to the need to share the gospel because we've checked out and included them in a group of people that they're not a part of. They're not feasting on the bread, right? Like like Christians are labeled as people who eat the bread and drink the cup, who feast on his flesh and, 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 and engulf his blood. Like, they want all of Jesus. Not a little bit of Jesus, not Jesus on the weekends, not Jesus sometimes, all the time, every time, Jesus is my choice. Can't have a casual relationship with him. Number four, embrace hard passages as an opportunity to grow. For our kids, when we get saved, Jesus keeps us forever. Embrace hard passages as an opportunity to grow. All right, so, so in the midst of all this bread talk, There is a lot of definitive statements about how salvation works, and if anything, we ought to read this passage and recognize that our salvation rests with God far more than we naturally think that it does. Let me say that again. Our salvation rests with God more than we naturally think that it does. There are certain things contained in this passage that if we weren't told them by God, we would be very prone to boast in ourselves about the spiritual life that we have. But in this passage, we find that there's a necessity for for God to call us if we are going to be saved. But then we're also told that everybody who God intends to save will get saved, and he will call them, and he will keep them. And so, too oftentimes, I think we think that in our, in our own free will, we are choosing God and then choosing to stay with God, whereas what we see in this passage is that, that God's really reaching out to us and drawing us and then keeping us and not letting anybody take us from him. That, that our security doesn't rest with us, it rests with God. That our coming to him rests with God and not with us either. Um, and that's hard sometimes to embrace, hard to to believe, right? And so two points that I want to make here. One, be willing to struggle with hard passages with a desire to be changed rather than to change his word. Be willing to struggle with hard passages with a desire to be changed rather than to change his word. What we don't want is to ever come to scripture, read something that sounds difficult, and then try to change it into a thing or a belief or a statement that's easier to accept we'd we'd much rather like to come to Scripture and say, hey, change me to where I'm better able to, to eat on that and to, to, to accept that, right? So be willing to struggle with hard passages. And it's okay to say this is a hard passage to struggle with and that I'm not fully sure what to do with it, but be willing to come to it with a desire to be changed rather than to change his word. Number two, be ready to hold tightly to what Scripture explicitly says and more loosely to what Scripture implicitly says, meaning, when scripture clearly says something, man, let's seize it, let's hold on to it, and let's bank on and say that's absolutely true. But oftentimes we, we see truths in scripture, we, we understand things in scripture that then leads us to make other statements that aren't necessarily said in scripture. Just reasoning and thought process, well, if this is true, then this must also be true. And it may very well be true, But we want to hold on to some of those things a little bit more loosely if they're not clearly said to us in Scripture. So grasp hold two hands with the things that Scripture clearly says. Be a little bit more loose with your thought process about what also must be true if this is true, if Scripture doesn't explicitly say it, right? Still hold to it, still believe it, but just be a little bit more loose and less dogmatic about it, right? Here are some passages, well, let me, let me give you this. This is kind of John MacArthur's statement summary of some of the things that are going on here in John chapter six. The plan of God from eternity past was to redeem a segment of fallen humanity through the work of the Son and for the glory of the Son. There was a moment in eternity past when the Father desired to express his perfect and incomprehensible love for the Son. To do this, he chose to give to the Son a redeemed humanity as a love gift, a company of men and women whose purpose would be throughout all the eons of eternity to praise and glorify the Son and to serve him perfectly. There are difficult words in Scripture regarding salvation that we have to do something with. We can't just deny that they're there, right? Like Words like the elect, predestination, things that just like oftentimes we're not very educated about. Oftentimes, pastors steer clear of. And, and so we oftentimes just dismiss them. In fact, in the commentaries that I was reading on John chapter six, you had the ones that were more reformed that were like, Yes, we finally got to a passage where we can really talk about what we believe. Others that aren't reformed, you're like, Do they have the same John chapter six? Because there's a lot of things that they just didn't comment on in this passage, right? Um, what I don't ever want is for us to be the type of people that run from difficult passages. I also don't ever want to become a people group that are known for difficult passages either, right? Like, like our identity is not tied to difficult passages that we feel like maybe we've come to an understanding of. There are clear things that God has to say about himself in this passage, clear things that he says about salvation in this passage, and I want us to kind of read through and see some of these, Okay. Let's talk about some of the truth statements regarding God's salvation plan here. Let's start, verse 35. First statement there is, whoever comes to Jesus in belief will be saved. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's the truth there? Whoever comes to Jesus, whoever comes to Jesus gets saved, right? Like, they don't hunger and they don't thirst anymore. Whoever comes to Jesus in belief, will be saved. We see this in verse 47 as well. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Man, that means that that, that salvation is extended. Whoever comes will be saved. Second thing here, the Father gives certain ones to Jesus and they will come to him. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice it doesn't say that all that come to me, the Father will give me. That there's a a work by the Father that happens first. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The father gives certain ones to Jesus, they will come. The ones that the father gives to Jesus will never be cast out. This is something that Jesus comes back to later in the gospel of John that I just wanna show you real quickly because it's always good to see A difficult passage and see it also found in another section of Scripture. Helps us interpret it. In John chapter 10, verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the idea that those that the Father gives to Jesus come to Jesus, and they 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 are never lost. John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Again, the idea that the Father has given certain people to Jesus for salvation. In verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The, one that the, father, the ones that the Father gives to Jesus will never be cast out. The ones that the Father gives to Jesus will not be lost either is what we see in John chapter six. They're not rejected. They come and they never hunger. They never thirst. They're not cast out. But then they're also not lost either. It says in verse um, 39, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. No one that God has planned to save can be lost. Romans eight thirty one through 39 talks about nothing separating us from the love of God. Philippians 1, 6 says when he starts a good work, he finishes the good work. The ones that the Father gives to Jesus will be raised up on the last day. Man, our resurrection is assured. It's promised. It's guaranteed. It's part of God's will. In fact, the next point there, our salvation is God's will that Jesus came to accomplish. Our salvation, us coming to Jesus, us staying with Jesus, us being raised to walk with Jesus for the, the, the uh, for eternity. It's all part of God's plan. He came to accomplish it, and he will accomplish it. We can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws us to him. So let's keep reading there. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "'I am the bread that came down from heaven.' They said, "'Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven?' Jesus answered them, "'Do not grumble among yourselves.'" No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So anybody who comes, no hungering, no thirsting anymore, right? In order to come, the father has to draw you. The word for draw there, the, the, the word is used in John 21, 11, and it's the word used for the disciples casting their nets and drawing the fish from the bottoms of the sea right? It's this idea of God consuming us and drawing us to him for salvation. For us to be saved, we have to be drawn by the Father. We are rebels without his intervention. Romans 3, 10-11 says that no one seeks after God. Verse 45, it's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone that the Father draws comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. If the Father draws us, we come. This lack of faith that he is seeing in this crowd doesn't discourage Jesus. That's the cool thing to me is that in, in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't even get discouraged at the end of this when everybody walks away. Because he knows, man, the ones that the Father's given to me, they're going to come and they're going to stay, and they'll never be lost. So these people that are walking away, these are people that God God hasn't given to me, that, that haven't been really drawn to me, that are rejecting and rebelling and being held accountable for their lack of faith. By coming to Jesus, we will escape death and enjoy life for eternity. He says, "'Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die.'" I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What we see here is that God calls those he has chosen. All the chosen come and the chosen are never cast out. The implication for us, here's those other ones that I just read through to you. Our salvation is God's will that Jesus came to accomplish. We can't come to Jesus unless the Father draws us to him. If the Father draws us, we come. By coming to Jesus, we will escape death and enjoy life for eternity. God did not set the stage for salvation and then leave responses to chance. Our salvation rests with God far more than we naturally think that it does. God did not set the stage for salvation and then leave responses to chance. All right, last one, number five, find encouragement in God's sovereign salvation. Find encouragement in God's sovereign salvation. Number one, unbelief cannot be satisfied naturally no matter how much proof is given. What does that mean? Well, that means you're gonna be sitting with people a lot that you're gonna be sharing the gospel with and they are going to doubt and not believe and make excuses and find things hard and difficult. And it doesn't matter how much proof you throw at them. It's never going to satisfy their unbelief. Something supernatural has to happen in them for them to come. Right, so you could sit and talk with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness till you're till you're blue in the face. I mean, you can just speak all the perfect proof statements, show them every proof text for why Jesus is God, and it does not matter. It doesn't matter if something supernatural doesn't happen. It does not matter. Now, does that mean that we just don't? No, no, because. Jesus also, God also ordains the means for how people are drawn to him, right? And it's through the presentation of the gospel. So we absolutely present the gospel and we keep presenting the gospel even in the midst of rejection. But we don't walk away discouraged thinking, man, I'm not getting the job done, right? You are getting the job done because you're being obedient by sharing the gospel. Something supernatural has to happen for somebody to come. Here's here's how we know this, right? In Mark chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus is hanging on the cross Jewish people are like, hey, why don't you come off the cross and show us that you can, you can overcome the cross, right? What happens three days later? He gets off the cross and he raises from the dead. And what do they do when they see him off the cross? They try to concoct a plan to explain it away, right? They're not interested in proof. They're not interested in evidence. They're not interested in believing. They're just not. So it doesn't matter how much proof we throw at somebody, unbelief can't be satisfied naturally. Secondly, though, your eternal future rests securely in the hands of Jesus. Not only will he not reject anyone who comes to him, he will also prevent us from ever being lost. Man, what what really jumps out to me in in this page here is that there is a security that I enjoy by coming to Jesus to where he works in me to make sure that I never leave him. So, we talk a lot about don't leave Jesus, don't leave Jesus, storms come, don't leave Jesus. Even these sermons are the means that God uses so that you don't leave Jesus, right? But at the end of the day, it doesn't rest on your ability to keep loving Jesus over the things of this world. He is working that supernaturally in you with his Holy Spirit through sermons like you hear here at Sovereign Hope to keep you believing in Jesus. Your eternal future rests securely in the hands of Jesus. He will prevent you from ever being lost. Application points. Number one, send questions you have from this passage that you would like for me to clarify in two weeks. We have gone through this very quickly. I wanted to make sure that we hit on the key points throughout it. I believe, again, that there is a lot of cycling through Jesus reiterating things that we have hit on over and over again today. But that may still leave you with questions. And I want to answer those questions. So please send me those questions, whether that's through the realm messaging, whether that's through text messaging, whether that's through just coming up to me personally and talking. I want to make sure that we answer questions from this passage. Secondly, I want to encourage you to seek to understand what you believe about the doctrines of election and predestination. Now, in the eight years that we've been here, right? Like, I don't know that I've ever asked you to do that but we've come to a passage where Jesus is talking about some of these things to the point that some people walk away and leave because it's confusing to them or they understand it and don't like it, right? This is a great opportunity, like I said in that point. Embrace hard passages as an opportunity to grow. Don't look at some of this and say, that's too confusing. I don't, I don't care. I don't know. I'm not sure what, what's happening here. Man, use this as an opportunity to grow in your faith. Use this as an opportunity to seek your teeth into Scripture, to understand some of the things that are said in Ephesians 1 about God saving us and developing a plan from eternity to bring us to salvation, to do all the work necessary to save us. Why should we understand this? Because God gets a lot of glory when we understand him better. It results in a deeper worship in our hearts when we understand our object of worship better. So we come to hard passages, we say, man, what's God doing here? Like, what's Jesus talking about here? Man, don't be content until you know. Don't be content until you understand. Don't be content until you've passed on questions to me and to others, sought to understand them in your own time in God's word, to where you know what Jesus is saying. You understand God deeper. Because when you do, you will worship him in a more meaningful way. We worship what we know. And when we know God in a deeper way, it leads to a greater sense of worship in our hearts, which is what he desires, which is what he's after. He wants us to conform to the image of his son, to the glory of his return, right? We talked about hoping in his glory. Man, we hope in his glory more when we understand what his plan is. His plan for his glory includes our salvation. The more we understand that, the more we can hope in that glory. So let's seek to understand this in ways that we may currently not. For our family worship questions this week, what promises do we see about salvation from this passage? What questions do we have about this passage still? Make sure that you send those to me. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you that you have worked so hard to save us, that when we were dead in our sins, rebellious towards you, following after the things of this world, that you sent your Holy Spirit to awaken us so that we could respond to the gospel presented to us. God, help us to see that without you, we remain in a rebellious state. That There's nothing in us that would ever desire you. But God, now that we've been awakened, for those of us in this room who have been awakened and, and have come to you, God, help us to see that we don't have to hunger and thirst anymore, that we can feast upon Jesus by believing in him more and more. And God, I pray that you'd give us a desire, a hunger and a thirst to know you more through your word so that we can believe more. God, help us to see that that's the act of how we eat and drink. It's to seek a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of you so that we can believe you more so that when we step out of these walls and we encounter trials and tribulations and difficulties and storms, that we are, we are prone to trust you in the midst of those things. God, we recognize that physical things have to happen and we have to eat and we have to drink and we have to work to, to provide those things for our family. But God, help our lives not to be so wrapped up in the things of this world, the things that perish. God, help us to lead our families well, to lead ourselves well, in the things that will last for eternity. God, help us to prioritize those things. As much as we have already planned to eat as soon as we are done here, God, help us to plan to eat spiritually this week as well. Help us not to starve ourselves by not running to you and your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.